The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to all the folks who might be new tonight. Feel free to check in at the end of the session if you have any questions about the center. And thanks to Brad and Ann and the others who came early, Dave, to clean. Uh, feel free to join the cleaning team. Brad's over there. You can talk to him afterward. But it's just an open time to come and clean with the community every Sunday night from 6 to about 7.45, or 6.45, 6 to 6.45. And then also people like Jeremy and a few others run a open tea time before, and that's uh, 6.15 right up until the program, just a chance to connect with other people in the community and easy conversation right before the program begins. So we're finishing up. Uh, those of you who've been reading along in Ajahn Sushito's book, he's a very well-known Western monk. He uh, was born in England or Britain, and uh, he wrote a book called Meditation, A Way of Awakening. It's available online. You can download it for free because he's a Buddhist monk. He doesn't sell his books. And uh, we have the link for it up on our blog. It's back a little bit, so you can track it down. But we're getting close to the end of six months of me giving talks, in some sense, based on the chapters in the book. And so for those who are reading along, we're on pages 225 to 238 these days for the next week or so. And then at the end of April, we'll be reading the rest of the book, which is another 20 pages or so. And it really, these, this ne- next section follows right in line with, with, with what we've been talking about the last few weeks for those who, who have been coming. And we've been talking about this topic in Buddhism called the five aggregates, which is really the Buddhist teachings on the mind and body. But instead of thinking of the mind and body as something static, you know, my mind, my body, it's really talking about what this is, our experience as a human being, is really the experience of being sensitive. We're sensitive to the body in the sense of sensitive to the five senses of the body, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and we're sensitive to the mind. And so instead of thinking about myself, you know, as a self, as a person, as a body, or somebody with a mind, we're training ourselves to understand that our experience is this experience of being sensitive in these ways. We're sensitive to the body through the five senses, and we're sensitive to this thing we call the mind. How do we know there's a mind? Because there's constantly moments of perception. And we just, you know, we make up this word, mind, to cover that experience of perceiving, right? We're constantly perceiving. We're recognizing experience. Aren't you recognizing this experience right now? Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm at common ground. This is happening. That's perception. And every time there's a perception, we have a feeling associated with it. And that can be known, too. Like, it's kind of pleasant being here. Or, I don't feel so comfortable being here. But whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with every perception, there's a feeling tone. And there are mental formations. There are thoughts, for example, about being here that arise because of the perception and the feeling. Oh, I should come more often, or 
I don't think I'm ever going to come back. So those are mental formations. They arise or they can be known. And that it's being known, consciousness, can also be known. Can't you right now know that you're conscious, that, that this experience is being known, can be known? Right? So we can be sensitive to the mind and the body, and that's really what this is. Right? That's the experience of being a human being, is that we're sensitive in these particular ways, that we're sensitive. That really defines us, not so much that I'm male or I'm you know, what we call white or I'm straight or I'm 58, soon to be 59 years old. We think that's what this is. But those are thoughts being known or perceptions being known, right? No, no, my body really is 58 and 11 months and 28 days old. (laughs) But that's just sensation being known, right? Just touch, achiness being known, sensation being known, thought being known. So this is a powerful training. And, you know, it's really appropriate for us from time to time to ask the question, well, what's, what's such a big deal about being aware, being mindfully aware in this deconstructed way? Sound is being known, sight is being known, thought is being known. Like, what's such a big deal? Like, why, is, why would the Buddha promote that way of being? that way of relating, that way of functioning as a human being, to keep coming back to this very simple, it's, it's challenging, not because it's complicated, it's challenging because it's not the habit of the mind. The habit of the mind, as you know, is to be lost in thought about things, to be caught up in our reactions, our thoughts, our interpretations, the meaning that our mind constructs with language, to basically live in that world of our mental constructions. So the real answer to that question, like what's the big deal about, what's so special about being present, being aware that these six things or these five things, you know, however you divide it up, that they're just something being known. What's such a big deal about realizing that this moment can never be more than something being known? Any moment. All of the past was just something being known. All of the future will just be moment by moment something being known, something being known. All of reality, what we call reality or what we call my life, my experience, it can never be more than something being known. So the reason you, you get a sense, hearing what I just said, why, what's the big deal about being present, being mindfully aware? Because it's a real affront to the thoughts, the ideas that we cling to. Right? What we might call self-importance or self-centered drama. It's a real challenge. It's a real deconstruction of meaning conceptual meaning, the constructions of our thinking mind into seeing things as uh, very natural, very lawful, 
unfolding of something being known, something being known, something being known. And there's a, you know, the mind knowing this, knowing that it's like this, and then the next moment knowing that it's like this. This is can be quite deluding because there is some continuity knowing that, it, that it's like this now, and the next moment knowing that it's like this, because moment by moment by moment, there's a lot of continuity from moment to moment, right? So it's easy for the conceptualizing, the thinking mind, the mind that tells a story, to tell the story that it's the same. You know, this moment is the same as the previous moment. I'm still at common ground. I'm still with the same group of people. Mark's still giving the same talk. So it seems like there's something permanent there. But the reality, not the philosophical reality, but our direct experience is there was a moment of something being known. This moment is something being known. The next moment is something being known. And if you have an interpretation of what that all means, so I must be here, that's something being known too. So whatever interpretation you have, whatever conclusion your meaning-making mind draws, constructs with words, that's just something being known too. And in terms of practice, we're not so concerned whether the story we're constructing is so-called right or not right. I mean, clearly there are some stories that sort of, in a sense, leave a better taste than other stories. You know, if I had a really paranoid story, like you're all out to get me, that kind of story comes also with certain kinds of tension in the body, right? Which is sensation being known. So some stories have other um, related factors that arise, just like, you know, telling ourselves more healthy, more wholesome stories can have an effect on what the mind knows. This is being known. So I'm, this is the, you know, this is the whole world of cause and effect or karma in Buddhist terms. It matters, but what matters more than what we're setting in motion, like whether we're repeating a really negative story, nobody likes me, or we're repeating a more wholesome story like we're all doing the best we can. The fact, the more liberating fact, it does matter, like one of those stories is, has more space in it, let's say, than the other, like nobody likes me, is a really contracted story, heavy story to be living inside of at that bubble, right? Versus the bubble, you know what, I think everybody here is doing the best they can. And of course, everybody here is affected by their cultural conditioning, They didn't ask for that. They're doing the best they can to wake up. Yeah, we all make mistakes. That story, that conceptual meaning, has a little bit more space in it. But even more liberating than moving from an unwholesome story to a relatively wholesome story is to realize all stories, whether they're unwholesome or wholesome, is just something being known. Thoughts being known, emotion being known, Sight, sound, sensation being known, smell and taste being known, never more than that. Now, 
we're not trying to make, like the Buddha didn't ask us to train the mind to, to deconstruct experience in this way, to make a metaphysical point. You see, the world isn't anything. The B- Buddha wasn't trying to make this nihilistic point that reality doesn't exist. It's just a knowing mind knowing something, right? And it's never more than that. And you don't even know what the knowing, the knowing or knower is. Right? You can never know the knower because if you can, that's something being known. You know that knowing is happening, but you never know what the knower is. can't be known. And so the Buddha is not trying to make some point. He's trying to set in motion the dropping away of attachment and grasping and all kind of any form of contraction, mental contraction, psychological weight. He's setting in motion a way of being that doesn't allow for any psychological weight. But in Buddhism we call liberation or nibbana, the unconditioned opening to the world, the reality, you could say, of non-grasping, non-clinging. And so this training, the mind and body is being known. This experience of the mind or body, mind and body, is just something being known, moment by moment by moment. The mind starts to experience what we call my life, the way it is, starts to experience it in a way that doesn't allow for grasping or neurotic holding or struggling or getting confused by pleasant and unpleasant, what I like and what I don't like. That can only, liking and disliking and all the struggles that arise from that dualistic way of seeing things can only arise when (coughs) there's a me trying to get what I like and what I don't like. But when I replace that sense of a me living this life in this world, right? doesn't it seem like I'm living my life in this external world? That's a story we're telling ourselves. It's just something being known. But it sure seems that way, doesn't it? I'm here living in this external world, trying in this external world to navigate my way where I avoid pain and I seek out pleasantness that some has some stability that will last for a while, like people liking me or having you know, security with food and shelter and social connections and right? But in now the Buddha now we got this teacher that says, Okay, fine. You don't need to make an argument against that because that would still be in that world. But as you're living in that world, cultivate this, use your mind to cultivate this way of being where you're realizing that at every moment it's just something being known. So, you, you know, you're navigating that space. You go home and you're navigating that space. Who's going to get the last bit of ice cream? You or your partner or people you live with. You know, but all the while, like let's say you're you're using some sneaky, underhanded way, like you could use, you know, you, sh- you could lose a few pounds there. Better let me eat that ice cream, or, or whatever. 
you know, there can be a moment of realizing that's just that activity, the emotion that's there, the charge that's there, the mental content that's there, is moment by moment just something being known, right? And the tasting of it, the eating of it, the washing up the dishes, moment by moment is just something being known. And what that does is it changes the way the mind relates to it. Like, try this when you go home. If there's something pleasant you're able to do or if there's something unpleasant you have to do that you've been avoiding doing. So whether it's pleasant or unpleasant doesn't matter, but try being there moment by moment as much as you can in this something is being known, something is being known. And the the sort of intoxicating quality of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the activity loses its controlling effect on the mind. It's like uh, one image that's used in the tradition, you know, those big ox or water buffaloes in Asia that do some of the grunt work of the farms. You know, they're huge animals. And they, you know, traditionally, they put a ring in the nose and that's where they tie the rope, right? And then when that beast, that very powerful beast is trained, then even a small child can bring the beast out to the field or bring them back into the barn or whatever. And the beast is just going to do because it doesn't want to feel the tug. Because, you know, this part of the body is probably pretty sensitive. And so it just all life long does whatever the person, you know, the little child does to lead them this way or that way. And in the same way, we're under the same spell that if something's slightly unpleasant, this is why we sit still in meditation practice, in the formal sitting practice, because otherwise when we're not doing our formal practice and we have a little itch, we just do this. Or the hip starts to ache, you know, we stretch the leg out. Or we're a little cold, we put the sweater on. And of course, there's nothing wrong with moving the body or putting a sweater on or eating food when we're hungry or doing whatever we do to manage the slightly unpleasant and slightly pleasant experiences that come our way. But by doing that, we become imprisoned. All life long, we're getting pushed around by pleasant and unpleasant. So when we sit still, or when we do this more subtle practice that I've been talking about, something is being known, we're changing pleasantness arising or unpleasantness arising as a controlling, having a controlling effect on the mind to realizing it's just pleasantness being known. It's just unpleasantness being known. Or it's just this experience being known. So it's really a world of difference between the quality of this experience that's being known because of habit, because of the force of habit, defining, controlling what's to come next, setting emotion what's to come next, all of a sudden there's freedom because wisdom in the mind can just realize it's just this being known without being compelled to do anything about it. So when we're sitting, you know, and we feel some pain in the hip, then a well-practiced meditator will know sensations like this, just sensation being known. And if the mind, because let's say the unpleasantness of the sensation is really strong, then the wisdom goes, not liking is like this. 
It's just the experience of not liking. Or maybe it's even hatred. The mind hating the painful sensations in the hip. Okay, hatred is like this. Or maybe it's even has risen to the point of fear of death. Oh, being afraid of dying is like this. Because sometimes when we're sitting, even something, forget a more obvious pain, it could be as simple as a fly crawling on the skin. And it can feel like we're going to die. If I don't swat that fly away or scratch the tickle that's left when the fly has gone away, it can feel like this will kill me if I don't touch my face. So that's kind of an interesting place because we know probably it's not going to kill us. But there's such a powerful force of habit to touch the face. So to be in that very interesting place where there's something very intense arising because of the conditioning of the mind to scratch when there's a tickle or an itch, but to stay committed to the form, which is to be relaxed and still, you know, short of the building burning down, right? We don't move. That's the point. Until we can't practice skillfully or just getting really tight, then we move. But until that point where all we're doing is cultivating unwholesome patterns, habits, we practice being still. So that's why, you know, as you're developing your practice, choose a length of time that you're really going to be comfortable being relaxed and still. And then really hold to that. Short of the building burning down or something big like that, it's like, no, I know for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is for you, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, I'm just not going to move. Now, the, the body, we may lose the continuity of awareness and we may just find that we've made an adjustment, but then we'll notice and we'll reassert that very wholesome intention. Okay, honey, let's just be here. And now let's use the form that the Buddha taught, which is to sit in an upright, relaxed, and still manner for a length of time that works for us. And, you know, back then, of course, they didn't have watches. And so when they couldn't sit still, then they'd get up and they'd do walking meditation. Like if they were a nun or a monk, and so they were they were sort of professional meditators, you know, and the community, the lay community would feed them. So they didn't really have, especially as a young nun or monk, too many responsibilities. So they could just continue practicing. So you'd sit until you could sit still. And then instead of pretending to be still or trying to be still, you'd get up and you'd walk, do walking practice until you didn't want to walk anymore. You know, you couldn't walk anymore in a relaxed, balanced way. And then you'd sit down in a still, relaxed way until you couldn't sit still and relaxed anymore. And then you'd walk. And then eventually it'd be time to eat or time to do some study or time to do a little cleaning. And then you'd go back and do sitting, walking, sitting, walking. All life long until they make you a the abbess or abbot of a monastery, you know, will give you some responsibilities or you die or something like that. So you use that form. Now, as lay people, it's more challenging. Our time to sit or to, to, to do formal practice is more limited. So we want to take advantage of that stillness because the stillness of the body represents the non-reactivity of the mind. So it's like a symbol. When we sit in a relaxed and a still way, it's a symbol that instead of being the person in pursuit of pleasantness and in the pursuit of getting away from unpleasantness, we're the person 
we're being a, 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 an awareness that's just aware that it's pleasant, aware that it's unpleasant. Oh, it's just something being known. So instead of the quality of what's arising, the pleasantness and unpleasantness, driving, you know, bringing up our habits, triggering our habits, reacting in our habitual ways, instead of that, for this calm, relaxed, clear, wise presence that's right in the middle, willing to feel, being intimate, but realizing whatever comes, hell or high water, sublime, peaceful experience, whatever it is, it's just something being known. And now it's like this. And now it's like this. And a good sit doesn't mean it's all pleasant. A good sit means everything under the sun has happened. We've had really dark experience, really intense, wild experience, really sublime, peaceful experience. And the wisdom was relatively constant. This is something being known. Now it's like this. Now it's like this. Now, you might think, well, well, how does that help me be a parent or how, you know, earn my living or do whatever I have to do my Well, the formal practice of sitting in a still and relaxed way, that's just that formal practice. But when we start to go out into the world, we're still doing the same thing. But when pleasant and unpleasant experience arise, somebody insults us, and we feel the unpleasantness of that, then because we know how to be intimate with the unpleasantness of it, we don't have to push back. We don't have to insult the person back as a way of avoiding the unpleasantness. So now we're able to be with the unpleasantness. So what we say in return to that person being obnoxious isn't based on me not being able or unwilling to feel what I feel. Because I'm able to feel that, then what I say can be what would actually be skillful to say in this moment. Like, are you having a hard day? Or, you know, when you act that way, I don't really want to be around you. I mean, we don't know what's appropriate to say, but what we can do is be okay feeling whatever we feel so that what we do in response isn't because we can't be with what we're feeling. Same thing when things are really pleasant and we have experienced some real success. If we can be intimate with that pleasantness of that success, then we don't have to grasp after it. Try to make it more than what it is. This is really nice. This is really pleasant. This is just pleasantness being known. And we don't have to be diluted. And it may not always be this way. It may change. It could change in a moment. But right now it's pleasant. And I'm totally willing to be intimate right in the middle of the pleasantness without being confused, without expecting the pleasantness to last. It may or it may not. But I'm okay with the the pleasantness that's being known. I'm okay with it being what it is, ephemeral, something that comes and goes, something that has arisen. It's like this now and may go away. It actually makes pleasant moments, in a funny way, more fulfilling and and uh, um, satisfying than when we're having a pleasant moment and we're really not there. We're because there's this neurotic part of the mind struggling to like lock it in, so it never goes away. We ruin so many nice meals, nice interactions with another person 
vacations, we ruin them by constantly strategizing all the way through. Instead of just letting the ephemeral but pleasant experience be what it is, be right there in the middle of it. And the, the, the truth seems to be that there's no way to have these insights without cultivating this present moment awareness. Because it's that stable, loving, clear presence, this is being known. That's what we mean by mindful awareness. This is being known. Cultivating, really grounding in the, the simplicity that this is being known. This is being known. It's only on that level, reducing human experience to that level, something is being known. Something is being known. And remember, it doesn't matter. You could totally react to this and in the next moment realize that reaction is something being known. You could have a very compelling thought. This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And then in the next moment, have a really wise moment of practice. This is being known. This is being known. You could be out, not even doing your formal practice out in the world. You know, and you could be like really skillful, really showing up with someone, saying just the right thing in the right way at the right time, really being selfless in a way. And you can see that that freedom and that skill is just something being known. You don't personalize it. You don't have grasp it. Oh, I always want to be this skillful. I always want to be this nimble as I live my life. And if you do take it personally and you do start to grasp, that can just be something being known. Oh, attachments like this. It's attachment, the feeling of attachment being known. So in this way, there's never a reason to judge ourselves or another person. It's just something being known. And if you do judge yourself, judging is being known. So instead of trying to fix the fact that we are attached to the judgment, just notice that it's something being known. We never have to go into the past to fix it because we were bad. Just start with the present moment realizing it's just something being known. Even if you were bad all day long, every moment, and then right before you went to bed, you realized what a jerk you were all day long. All you have to do in that moment is realize that the remorse you're feeling is something being known. You don't have to identify with it. Then it would be like lacerating guilt. You idiot, you were so bad today. But if you do do that, then realize that that lacerating guilt is just a feeling being known. So every moment we're dropping the identification and replacing it with this is being known. You see, in that in that world, in that way of being where it's just this being known, there can't be any psychic weight. There can't be any neurotic entanglement. You see that? Like, it's just this being known. So whatever, uh, like, imprisoning meaning you might construct, like everybody's out to get me or the Buddha's full of, that's a thought being known. And if there's an emotional charge to it, that's just a charge being known. You see how it strips away? Because weight, psychic weight, being tight, 
being like leaning in, wanting something to happen, all depends on the mind being identified with meaning. Like even fear of death or any experience of anxiety depends on a story. Can you be anxious without a story? A lot of you might say, yeah, I feel anxiety and I don't know why. But the thing is, when there's no story, that means you know the feeling is just that being known. But I don't like this unpleasantness. Well, that's a story, that there's a person who doesn't like the unpleasantness of anxiety. And that story is just something being known. So when we keep reducing reality, our experience, to something being known, all suffering falls away. That's how you know you're getting some momentum in your practice. And so the uh, corollary to that is if you're still feeling some weight, some tightness, some fear, some anxiety, some heaviness, it just means there is something that you're not noticing is just something being known. Something is happening, something is present, and the mind isn't able... There's not enough stability in the awareness, enough momentum in the practice to realize it's just this being known. And it's not a muscular effort for the mind. It's just a matter of recognizing that this present moment experience is being known. And the real trick, it's more of a wisdom move than a muscular move, right? Because when I say this, the key, you know, and you can use a word like judging is being known, but this is more inclusive. Like when we say this, the key is that whatever is already being known, felt, seen in the moment, that's what that word this points to. Sort of all the objects that are being known. Oh yeah, this is just something being known. And remember, the emphasis is on it's being known. It's just something being known. Now, you won't really get a sense of how liberating this is, how this could be the real essence of this path that human beings have been doing for 2,600 years and really finding a lot of freedom and natural wisdom and love in their lives through this practice until you do it. You have to do it with enough sincerity as if it's going to work to start getting a taste that it, in fact, does work. But it means leaving behind everything else. Like all of your thoughts of what you want, who you are, where you're going in life, what's important, that's all part of the story. You don't have to try to get rid of that. You just have to realize it's something being known. That's the thing. Don't try to stop thinking by telling yourself to stop thinking. Just realize that whatever thinking there is, whatever reactivity there is, whatever life activity there is, every moment it's just something being known. It's just this being known. And you can name it. There's, you know, techniques where you train your mind to label or name or note what's being known. Thinking is being known. Sensations are being known. Not liking is being known. But whether you note it or label it or whether you just notice that the knowing mind is knowing this now, that's what's important. The labeling it is just something to use when it helps strengthen that continuity of mindful awareness. Oh, now this is being known. 
At first, it will feel awkward, like when you're having a conversation with somebody, and then the momentum of your practice, which, you know, is feeble for most of us because we're just not putting enough sincere effort into it, you know, we'll have moments of, like, here I am talking to Jeremy, and every once in a while, there's a little moment of, yeah, and this is being known, you know, this. And initially, it might feel like a little self-conscious, like, I'm not supposed to know that this is being known. Because in a way, it's like a different dimension that we're not used to having in our present moment activity. I mean, intellectually, we get that it makes sense that as we're living our life, that there could be this reflective knowing, this is being known, this is being known. But when we actually start doing it, especially outside of formal meditation practice, it can feel a little weird to be reflectively aware this is being known. But that's just the preliminary feeling because it's so novel, so new to be aware as we're living our life. It's like to drive home, those of you in a car or those of you on a bike or walking even, on your way home, it's like, it's especially if you've been coming for a while, it's something you're, you, you tend to do an automatic pilot. So to really do it with a continuity of awareness might feel a little weird. Like, why do I want to be aware? I, I want to be lost in thought. And so from this point of view, the point of view of practice, you say, honey, you can do whatever you want. You can be aware that you're driving when you're driving, or you can be lost in thought. But we're going to be aware when you're lost in thought that you're trying to be lost in thought, Right? We're going to be aware of that effort to get lost in thought, to fantasize about something or obsess about something. Because this practice, more than anything, is strengthening the value of mindful awareness. Like, that's the most important thing. This, so in Buddhist terms, we call it a refuge. We don't take refuge in God or heaven or, we take refuge in being awake and being aware, this reflective awareness. This is what we put all, we put all our eggs in this basket. Not in bank accounts, not in having a charming personality, and not even something what we would consider so skillful as, like being a kind person. As useful as it is to be a kind person for our own well-being, the well-being of others, even more useful, more powerfully transforming, is to cultivate this refuge, this great devotion, this number one value in being reflectively aware. Oh, this is being known. This is being known. And so every moment you have one of those awkward moments of, oh, this is being known. Because the more you practice formally sitting meditation, the more you'll just have moments during the day where you're just aware that you're aware. Aware that the mind is knowing this, that this is what's being known, right? And you want to honor those moments. Like you planted that seed through practicing formally, and now you're having more natural moments of awareness just popping up in daily life. Well, you just notice, oh yeah, the sky's blue. Blueness is being known. Or you're seeing something and you're reacting to it like, Somebody's walking their dog and the dog poops and they didn't pick it up. And you have this whole trip you go through or you read something in the news and you have this whole self-righteous trip going on. And all of a sudden there'll be a moment of awareness that realizes, 
you know, this churning of self-righteousness is something being known. It's as if the sense of me that's tripping over the self-righteousness caught up in it, all of a sudden there's this space, this wise space that realizes, oh yeah, that's being known. And one of the fruits of realizing that's just something being known is how dysfunctional that is. Like, it's not helping anybody to be identified with the self-righteousness. So it tends to get weaker, that pattern. Every moment we notice it's just something being known. It's not that I'm trying to get rid of that neurotic habit of self-righteousness. It's just a matter of when it's seen for what it is, it loses its charm. It loses its seductiveness when we see these unwholesome, unhelpful patterns. How many times have we wanted to drop an unwholesome pattern? Many times. But that doesn't make it go away. What makes it go away is to see it in a non-judging way. To see the dysfunction as dysfunction. When we see our addictive patterns for what they are, they start to erode. Hating our addictive patterns does not make them go away. Right? Any of you who have had addictive patterns, we all have had them, you know, our own particular version. Hating it, denying it, these do not help. But in a moment of seeing it without judging, but just seeing it act itself out, play itself out due to, the, due to the momentum of habit, seeing it in living color, feeling into it as it actually is, that will weaken it. I guarantee it. It does. But we have to invest. We have to value mindful awareness, this reflective and non-judging awareness. And this is why the Buddha teaches this teaching on mind and body or the five aggregates is because he's changing from the story of this is my life, I'm living my life, I'm trying to navigate my way through my life where there's less of the bad stuff and more of the good stuff and to it's just something being known. An experience of the mind or body being known. It's just a feeling being known, a perception being known, a sight, sound, touch being known, consciousness being known. It's just these qualities of the mind and body being known. So questions, discussion, experiences from your own practice that you have that you'd like to share? Is that Mike? I always forget. Mike has the mic. (laughs) Yeah, Kermit, start us off. Yeah, Mark, you um, you use a word a lot during the guided meditation, uh, the heart, the sensitive heart. How does that fit in with... uh, five aggregates. Yeah. So, I use that word sensitive heart basically to talk about the is being known. It's like a step in the direction of realizing that we don't have to do the awareness. So, the this practice of this being known, right, they're not really separate, separated. This and the being known. There's no this without it being known. And there's no way to intuit that is being known without a this that is being known, right? So we talk about it as two things. This is being known, but it's just the present moment, right, is being known. And so when we talk about the sensitive heart, it's just a way of realizing that we don't have to try to know the present moment. 
Because a lot of the mistake when people get instructions about being mindful, they think it's something that they as a person have to do. So they sit down and then they try to be aware. But awareness is already here, right? I always do this little trick, just as you didn't have to try to hear the clap, right? Because your heart was already sensitive. Your mind was already knowing. Awareness was already here. We don't have to do awareness. But we have to train the mind to recognize what's already here. Or another way we say it in Buddhism is we're training the mind to recognize that something's being known. To understand, like it's a different view, to view this as something being known, which are together as the present moment. So we're learning to view the present moment as something being known, two sides of the same thing. Object is being known by the subject. And together they're the present moment. And we're training the mind to do that. And we can do that because the heart is sensitive to the present moment. There is awareness already knowing. Now we just, it just needs to be recognized in an honest way what's happening. What is happening is something is being known. And we can do that because there's a sensitive heart. In a way, and I mentioned this, I think you were here, Kermit. There isn't really anything but the sensitive heart or the sensitive mind. That's all there is, as far as we know. Right, because all we know is our subjective experience as a, what we call a human being. There may be an external world. It's not relevant. What's relevant is there's a sensitive heart. Right? There's knowing, knowing this. That's all we know. The sensitive heart is knowing what we call our life, moment-to-moment experience. That's all we know. And where does this all happen? in the mind or in the heart. Our whole world is known in the mind or heart. That's all we know. Yeah, Andy, wait for the mic though. You want to pass the mic over to Andy? Um, Because you oftentimes talk about sensing in the body, what, what it's feeling right now, my heart is sort of my way into the body because um, just if I were to say, okay, now where do I feel tension? You know, it's, it's sort of separate, feels sort of separate from me. But if I say, um, you know, like you often say, my heart, I care about this heart. And so, and I care about this body. And so it just, it's the way I have a, I can learn to know what my body is feeling. Yeah. And that, you can't really do that, this practice without bringing in what you said, Andy, because um, what tends to happen, especially for some of us more than others, is we tend to have, we do this practice in a, with a flavor of coldness or sterility, you know, a little sterileness. Um, where we think we can get some distance from pain by saying something being known. And so bringing in that quality of compassion and tenderness and that we care about the sensitivity 
really allows for the necessary vulnerability. Because when to do this practice, there is a kind of exposure or vulnerability. There's no this is being known without total exposure and vulnerability. Because we're letting go of any other kind of defense or distance. Because any distance, like we're observing experience over there, witnessing something over there, that distance is a story the mind is telling itself. It may seem like distance, but it's really a story that, oh, this is happening to me, but I'm okay because I'm just observing it. So we can notice that that sterileness, that distance, that detachment as a kind of aversion or fear. And it's corrected by what you were talking about, realizing, I care about this. I care enough to be sensitive. I care enough to be willing to be vulnerable. I care enough to even be willing to be unclear, uncertain, for things to be ambiguous or unknown. Because that's scary. And to drop the world of meaning and to go into the experience of awareness brings up some fear for some of us some of the time, or all of us some of the time, I should say. Thanks, Andy, for bringing that in. Still time for others? Who'd like to go next? Yeah, please. Say your name again for us. Uh, My name's Mike. I just wanted to share an experience that I had, um, and it kind of relates to your talk tonight. Um, I was kind of, I think the term is papancha. Mm -hmm. Um, Proliferation. Yeah, the proliferation of thought. And I was kind of trying to focus on that uh, during a a sit. And... um, I was noticing kind of the daisy chaining of, of thoughts uh, as they occurred. And then there was, um, I guess, just from recognizing that, this separation of internal and external, I don't know, it's weird, but it kind of, it went away and there was this realization that um, that this daisy chaining of thought from the mind is just kind of its nature. And then there was this uh, kind of letting go of responsibility for those. Um, Freedom. Yeah. And it's kind of, I, I don't know. It was, I mean, it was, I, I don't know what to say, but yeah. it was. <laughs> it, it, but no, you said you were really articulate and, and really made a powerful point. And it's important that we share and then we hear different people share that the practice delivers freedom. Because whenever we're willing to see things as they are, something being known, then the sense of self, which means a sense of separation, has to fall away because it depends on the mind being identified with the meaning that the thinking mind is constructing. But instead of doing that, the mind is realizing it's just something being known. And if it can do it with enough continuity, then we start getting glimpses or tastes of the freedom. It's basically of what this is when it's not mediated by the meaning, the neurotic self-centered meaning that the mind imposes, the thinking mind rather, imposes on experience. So that will drop away. Like whatever neurotic and uh, existential fears and 
hopes and dreams and desires that squeeze our heart, whatever those are, they have to be created over and over again, moment by moment. They can fall away in any moment. We just The mind just has to cease that neurotic activity. So we have to give the mind something to do that's not neurotic. There's only one thing that's not neurotic, seeing things as they are, something being known. This is the one thing that's not neurotic. And just to bring in the point Andy made, for many of us to do that, we have to bring in this authentic quality of love. Because otherwise, we do it as a control move. The ego is doing that. This is being known. But love takes the ego out of it. When we do it because we care, like you said, Andy, then that that's a different motivation. When I'm doing it to fix my life, that's a self-centered motivation, and it won't work. But when we do it because we care, then it will work. Now, some people naturally practice from this place of compassion. But if we're not practicing from that place of compassion, we have to bring it in. Because you can't really be mindfully aware without it. We have time for one more comment. Yeah, Andrew. You get the last word, Andrew. I, think so. um, I actually wanted to ask if uh, you could elaborate a little bit more on the process of bringing in that compassion. It's something I've noticed uh, since the beginning of uh, starting formal sitting practice is that I like I really naturally like react to or like I experience reaction to sharing the merit, and so I, I know that that's something that is like that is a powerful like motivation for me but then oftentimes in the course of a sit like it does feel that very like self-centered like i'm trying to like figure out what's going on in here and i, I was wondering if you had any practical advice for sort of integrating those two things it's a little bit like the awareness practice where instead of thinking that mindful awareness is something i have to do it's something i'm recognizing oh there is awareness already here it's really the same with love and compassion or whatever word you like to use. That Because instead of thinking that love and compassion is something I have to do or being generous is something I have to do, it's more assuming that it's like start with the assumption that it's here, that that basic goodness is here, that basic generosity of the heart is here, and it and it exists as a kind of non-separation or non-fragmentation of the mind, like the mind that doesn't need to separate itself out, doesn't need to throw anything outside of itself, right? Isn't afraid of anything. So we're, we're basically rediscovering the force of love as something that's natural and already here, but the mind is just not in the habit of recognizing it. So a lot of what we need from our teachers and our, you know, our study and our friends is an inspiration that it's already here, that there's a basic goodness, a movement of love or compassion already available. And then we go through the day with the intention to notice it, like, oh, there it is. This heart is capable of love. Yeah, real quick though, Andy. To me, it's that I have a hard time recognizing that I, I'm already connected. I'm already connected with nature and everything in the universe, but if I try to think about it, then I don't feel it. Because it isn't a story, it's a present moment reality. Yeah, and that's where we have to look.
something that's already real, the, the sort of intimacy we experience. You might be just clipping your toenails, you know, you're sitting there clipping your toenails, but the mind ceases to create division, separation. So it's not about that I have this love just for my toenails. Really, it's, it's the absence of the mind creating separation in moments. There the love is. It was always there, but it now it's not being obscured by some damn toenails that I got to clip, you know, some story that creates a, a duality. You know, like I got, I have this responsibility of clipping my nails. And uh, just one last point, um, the Monday night Buddhist studies class that we're in the middle of, all those talks are online that you can listen to on our website. And this spring course is on compassion and kindness. So you might want to listen to some of those talks. And there's, under the resource page on the website, all the readings that go with the Buddhist studies class on compassion and loving kindness are also there too. So there are a number of really good articles besides the recorded guided meditations and talks are all online you can listen to. So let's just take a moment, let go of the words. It's nice to let things go back to silence for just a few seconds. Appreciating these simple, profound teachings and all the folks before us, all the women and men who did their practice and were the fortunate recipients of this wisdom stream. But now it's our turn in our busy lives to do the best we can to become part of what keeps this stream of wisdom and compassion in motion for later generations. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.